I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. And welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 87 for June 2020. Mm. I'm Duncan. And I'm Simon. And I am the Senate. (laughs) I will make it legal. Uh, Look, 1987 was a curious year for yours truly at the cinema. As a 12-year-old, I saw a lot of really dodgy films when I went through the list. Cool. Police Academy 4, Citizens on Patrol. (laughs) The Secret of My Success. Oh. Masters of the Universe. Wow. Like Father, Like Son. And Leonard Part 6. Le- I, I saw <laughs> Leonard Part 6 in the cinema. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So did I. Mm. Uh, on the plus side, I'm pretty sure I saw Good Morning Vietnam at the cinema yeah. the same year. And The Living Daylights, uh, which was my gateway Bond film. Oh, really? Yeah. So that was the first oh, cool. film I saw. First Bond film I saw in the cinema. I think I might have seen a couple on VHS by then. Um, so they were good, those ones. But also in 1987, and forgive me if I have told this story before, but my sister and I cycled down to the cinema to see Batteries Not Included. We bought our tangy fruits and drink and sat down and watched what we thought were the trailers. And I, I thought it was a really long trailer with an old man reading a story to his grandson. Uh, but as I was drawn into the story, entertained as its unique storytelling unfolded, it was, of course, The Princess Bride. Wow. Uh, once it was finished, my sister and I cycled home raving about it and how surprising it was. Like, I had no idea the film existed before that. Mm. Like, none. I, mm. I, I, I'd never seen the trailer, the, seen the poster, or even heard the name. Uh, but it was one of those kind of great cinema experiences when you're a kid. And to this day, I don't know if I've ever actually seen Batteries Not Included. Yeah. But I've seen Princess Bride plenty of times. But yeah. Yeah, it was just amazing where I was like, oh, what is this? Uh, also, look, there's plenty of other great films in 87. Lethal Weapon, Angel Heart, Raising Arizona, Ishtar. You're one of your favorites. Love Ishtar. Predator, The Untouchables, Full Metal Jacket, Robocop, The Lost Boys, Best Seller. Do you remember that? That was quite a good one, too. quite like that one. It was with uh, um, James Woods and like Brian Dennehy in it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. Barfly, Empire of the Love Sun. Barfly. The Running Man, Planes, Trains, Automobiles, uh, a film I've spoken about, John Houston's last one, The Dead. Moonstruck, of course, which mm. we've talked about. The Last Emperor, another one we've talked about, The Hidden. Mm. Uh, David Mamet's House of Games, which is really good if you haven't checked that out. Ringo Lamb's Prison on Fire. Vim Vendor's Wings of Desire. With Nail and I, of course. And one of my f- wife's favourite films, Baghdad Cafe, which is uh, I can recommend as well. That's a great year, eh? Yeah, it's a fantastic year. None of them I saw in the cinema. I saw all of those. Yeah, yeah on, on video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, so where to begin for me for 87? This is probably my favorite year in horror since since we've been doing this. Wow. Yeah. Uh, well, it is. I mean, listen to this. This was the year Peter Jackson arrived with Bad Taste. In fact, I had to double check because it seemed mind-boggling that it came out 33 years ago. Mm. Shocking. And it was also the year of Clive Barker and his wonderful debut, Hellraiser. The Lost Boys was the big vampire hit of the year, but Near Dark, directed by future Oscar winner Catherine Bigelow, was my preferred bloodsucker of 87. The excellent underrated The Stepfather. It was a fantastic performance from Terry O'Quinn came out this year, as did Angel Heart, as uh, Duncan said. A film Teenage Simon adored thanks to Mickey Rourke and Alan Parker's stylish direction. And spoiler alert, Fave the Hidden, of course, was also released. We also got two fun fright films with the superior Elm Street sequel, The Dream Warriors, which we've covered, mm-hmm. and one of my favourite monster mashups, The Monster Squad. The film that gave us the immortal scene of the Wolfman getting kicked in the balls by a kid who would then excitedly, excitedly yell, the Wolfman's got nards. <laughs> that, that's a lot of great entertaining scare films. But 87 is the year that keeps giving, and it also gave us some enjoyable trash as well. After all, we've heard of The Howling, right? Well, in 87, we got the Aussie set sequel, We Never Knew We Needed, in our life, Howling 3, The Marsupials. And I will never forget, and frankly, how could you forget? The scene of a woman giving birth to a tiny marsupial werewolf that climbs up her belly and nestles into her furry pouch. <laughs> Unbelievable. Moving stuff. But we also get the bonkers dolls. John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness with Alice Cooper as a zombie. Perfection for me in my teenage years, getting to see him on screen and, you yeah. know, 
Blood Diner, Slumber Party Massacre 2. Not that great, by the way, but it does have a reanimated rock star killing kids with an electric guitar fitted with a heavy-duty drill, which is something, you know. Mm. And the memorably, grotesquely vicious Street Trash, which we watched one of my Halloween nights. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that one. But look, there can only be one film to talk about from 87 for me. And that's because there are a handful of films I can count amongst films I've lost track of how many times I've watched. Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, which I would watch daily as a kid. Mm. Uh, Hard Boiled, I Walked with a Zombie, to name a few. But maybe the film I've watched the most in my lifetime is Evil Dead 2. Right. Sam Raimi's seemingly chaotic whirlwind of slapstick comedy and OTT gore in which he threw a rubber-limbed Bruce Campbell against latex monsters, stop-motion reanimated girlfriends and his own comically severed hand was the right, just the right blend of laughs and frights for me. Wildly inventive and whiplash fast, Evil Dead 2 had me spellbound when I first saw it in the Civic Theatre on release. Wow. Yeah, and I've owned numerous copies since on VHS, DVD, and now, of course, Blu-ray, ensuring that Raimi really had me by the heart and wallet ever since. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you can't go wrong with Evil Dead 2. Ah, oh, it's fantastic. <clears throat> uh, yeah, very um, envious that you got to see that at the cinema. Yeah, yeah, great experience. Yeah. But yeah, I think I currently own two Blu-ray copies of it now. But I've had it on DVD before that and mm. obviously VHS before that. You had like the ne- Necronomicon version? I do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I think I may have borrowed that off you before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've got the ne- yeah, I've got the like the, the knife that comes with it too, like the plastic <laughs> knife. Uh it's crazy. So you're ready for the zombie apocalypse when the Yeah, it's coming, isn't it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> All signs point to yes. Yes. <laughs> And so, Simon, what have you been watching? Okay, well, a few years ago, I saw a single short short called Thunder Road. Mm-hmm. Uh, the story of a police officer trying to perform a dance to the Springsteen classic at his mother's funeral. Uh, it was heartbreaking, hilarious, and awkward, often at the same time. R- writer, director, and star Jim Cummings had me glued to his every move. He's still the actor I keep waiting to see, like, really break out. Mm-hmm. Uh, his performance in this short and a handful of other shorts I saw him in it was just so assured and compelling. And he's a really good-looking guy as well. I can see him being the lead in something. Mm-hmm. Well, this month I did get to see him as the star of a feature, the feature-length adaptation of his own short, Thunder Road. Right. Once again, starring as well as writing and directing, Cummings adapts his 2016 Sundance Award winner by essentially replaying the events of the short film as the feature's opening before diving into the chaotic life of his cop character, his messy divorce, uh, the conflicted feelings towards his departed mother, his attempts to keep custody of his daughter and the dramatic disintegration of his career. Cummings is as watchable here as he was in his breakthrough. As he did two years earlier, he walks a tightrope between drama and comedy. His officer, Arnaud, is never more than a moment away from ugly crying in a way that is simultaneously heart-wrenching and hilarious. <laughs> Though it's billing as a comedy is a real stretch. I mean, that is, it's way darker than I expected. Uh, but Officer Jim remains likable, almost lovable, and though he does some scary things in Thunder Road, you root for him. You want to see him work through the mess of his life because you're pretty sure he's a decent guy going through a bad time. Uh, what makes it all so absorbing and dramatically rich, apart from his performance, is that you're also pretty sure he doesn't have the intellect or the emotional capacity to actually deal with any of it, you know? <laughs> Um, if Thunder Road could be considered to have a flaw, it's that it's in, has an episodic quality to it. It's the debut of a short filmmaker, a, a short filmmaker, and it can feel like a series of shorts kind of stitched together. With the Officer Jim losing his cool and then desperately trying to fix the damage he's caused, like repeatedly. Uh, but you know what? Who cares? Because <laughs> when the scenes are this moving, it starts this absorbing. His portrayal of damage and despair so achingly real. I'd happily watch more. Uh, I got all the feels from this film, to repeat the cliche. You know, yeah. I laughed, I cried, genuinely. And neither of those responses are, are all that easy to get out of me. Yeah. And as I always say, I value an emotional connection and reaction in a film above almost anything else. And Thunder Road and the multi-talented Jim Cummings just delivered for me. Oh, that sounds great. we have to hunt that one out. Yeah, it's really great. And I genuinely was in tears several times and wow. and then laughing and then feeling terrible about what i just laughed at yeah you know it was one of those sort of films oh that sounds brilliant yeah it's great Very and um how about you uh, yeah well uh, look i watched a film that um i think we may have spoken about before you you would have got to it quite a while ago but um at nearly three hours i watched uh midsummer the director's oh, cut the, the director's cut i haven't yeah. seen the director's cut yeah okay. i i don't know um how different it is uh it just happens to be the one that's on sky at the moment but i was mm-hmm. like okay let's kick back and watch this 
but interestingly, the three hours didn't drag. Yeah. Uh, instead, it draws you into its bright world of washed out white and colorful flowers, which makes it all the more applaudable that it is here where the horror is brought out uh, in kind of this blazing daylight for pretty much the whole movie. Um, and Ariasta also provides a platform for uh, Florence Pugh to unleash her considerable talent. She's likable, grounded, and vulnerable. And the trauma she suffers in the film's excellent opening is another piece of, sort of Astra abjection that he did in Hereditary as well. You know, as we know, Ari Aster's Hereditary was Simon's favourite film of the year last mm. year. And Midsummer runs a similar gamut of emotions and even has a central character who experiences unimaginable grief, struggles with mental issues, finds ancient ways to deal with modern problems. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't think it ever reached the cruelty or, or the real nerve-shredding moments of Hereditary for me. Yeah. Uh, but it does have some intense gore, specifically the the ritual suicides, and oh, giving goodness. giving too much away by mentioning that. So, um, and like Tony Collette before, Esther also provides a platform, as I say, for for Florence Pugh. And we're on board for her journey, hoping she will survive the horror, uh, but also because she may provide the key to understanding its significance. Mm. Because thematically, Midsummer, I thought, was fairly on the nose. The disintegration of a relationship and kind of eventual rejection of the worst traits of male behavior. And her boyfriend sits high on the list of douches in recent mm-hmm. film history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's also because he's not villainous, but vanilla. Uh, that somehow makes him all the more offensive. Yeah, it's a pretty douche-laden film, eh? It's a massively douche-laden film. film. Uh, but Asta also presents men in their early 20s with some chilling accuracy, I thought. Yeah. It's not just the woman chasing and responsibility ducking of them. It's also the rationalization of the men who are emotionally immature, wanting to avoid dealing with any real empathy or navigating through hardships. And uh, just kind of what each of them kind of signified, really, mm. each of the, the those male characters. Um, but yeah, it was an interesting one <laughs> where I got to the end of that and was like, all right, Aris has gone through some stuff and really wants to purge some stuff. And I felt it was a lot more personal in some ways than maybe Hereditary possibly right. would be. Um, I thought it was a heck of a follow-up. Eh? Oh, it was an incredible follow-up. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. Um, not as, to me, may, maybe because it comes after Hereditary, you know. Maybe if Midsummer sure. came first, Hereditary came second, you'd be saying the same thing. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, and I definitely recommend checking out. And I don't know how different it would be to the uh, original. I would imagine, actually, that probably... None of the narrative is sacrificed. Um, it's probably just all the extended right. kind of rituals and, you know, maypole dancing and Wicker Man creepiness is probably extended yeah. more and more and more. Um, but yeah, some really nice little neat visual tricks in the film too. Yeah. That kind of unsettle you. And um, yeah, uh, anyone who hasn't seen it, uh, I recommend checking it out. But definitely, you know, bring your bring a stomach of steel for a couple of the scenes. Yeah. It is the warmest looking um, horror film, I think. Uh, yep. I can think of seeing like so much of that is in bright, beautiful daylight, don't mm. it? Yeah, and it, it, I think sometimes he probably, possibly sacrifices some of the tension through laughter. Mm. Um, but that's a decision, obviously, he's a talented filmmaker, so I'm sure he's made mm. that conscious t- choice. But yeah, um, but yeah, so it's interesting to uh, I'm interesting to see what he does next. But yeah, I mean, considering he basically did that year the year after Hereditary, yeah. it's pretty impressive. So. Yeah, look forward to what he does next. Yeah, totally. Okay, so last month was May the 4th, the day where we celebrate all things Star Wars, and so we decided to take another look and give some love to some Star Wars that traditionally doesn't get a lot of love. Uh, the prequel trilogy. That's right, George Lucas's much maligned series of films that saw him turn to the director's chair to tell a story of how a little boy came to become everyone's favourite cinematic bad guy, Darth Vader. So we're starting with Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace from 1999, starring Liam Neeson, Ewan McGregor, Natalie Portman, Ahmed Best, Samuel L. Jackson and Ian McDermott, written and directed by George Lucas. The sinister trade federation are blockading the peaceful planet of Naboo. Two Jedi, a young Obi-Wan Kenobi and his master, Qui-Gon, break through the blockade to take Queen Amidala from Naboo to the Galactic Senate on Coruscant to plead to her planet's case. But their ship is damaged in the escape and they are forced to land on Tatooine. There they meet the child slave Anakin Skywalker, already strong in the Force, 
who helps him escape and gains his freedom in the process. Qui-Gon promises to train Anakin as a Jedi, but first they must free Naboo and the two Jedi will have to face the terrifying Sith, Darth Maul. Nice wrap-up. That's a lot going on. Yeah, there's a lot. In 1999, I was, like most of my generation, beyond excited for episode one. I managed to get a copy of the first trailer on VHS. Do you remember that? And I rewatched it so many times. Great trailer. It was a fantastic trailer. And I watched that so much. I was like, I'm so amped for this. And then I watched the Phantom Menace premiere at a midnight screening. There were people dressed up as characters fighting with lightsabers on the stage before the screen lit up. People cheered when the opening titles hit. Seeing Jedi's in action straight away. Even the Padawan term became an instant term of joking affection. Uh, we'd had years of the Ewoks being mocked and seen as like friendly unit shifters for toy manufacturers. So Jar Jar and young Anakin were kind of tolerated as kitty fodder because in exchange we had Jedi's at the top of their game taking on a badass Sith. We had Jewel of the Fates rising to the occasion and we were back in the galaxy far, far away. Oh, that, that's great. Yeah. And I assume you still feel exactly the same today. Uh, yeah, and, and I remember coming out of it and uh, going... Yeah, I really liked that. I thought that was great. Uh, there's some stuff in there I don't like, but uh, that, was, that was awesome. Yeah, yeah. And I remember someone, a friend of a friend coming out and going, just, he was a little, he's a little bit of a hater anyway, but he was just, he was like, that was what a load of garbage. Straight away. I was just like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting, eh? And it was also that thing of like, well, are we, is it possible that Star Wars isn't, there's a Star Wars yeah. film that's not good? Like that, we take that for granted now, but back then that was like. Oh, I, I just think you remember talking to you and Kyle, and I yeah. was uh, more dismissive than you guys. And yeah. You guys were a little bit, nah. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not saying that show off because I also thought Attack of the Clones was better. When <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I saw it in the cinema, so you know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know yeah. what that says. Yeah. So I was, uh, I was all about it, you know. Yeah. Like I was just like, yeah, it's Star Wars, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, Going back and watching it now, I feel that there were two changes that would make all the difference for me, and you touched on this. Uh, and I think making Anakin older and yep. either get rid of or drastically change Jar Jar, because yep. those are the two big weaknesses for me on a rewatch. Because I'm actually mostly fine with everything else in this film. Right. Yeah, to my surprise. The issue with Jar Jar is he's just so annoying. <laughs> uh, now, one of the defences I hear for his character is that Star Wars needs and has always had comic relief characters. Uh, and people who lean into this argument point to the presence of C-3PO in the original trilogy. But let's be clear, not all comic characters are created equal. C-3PO is vain, but eternally frustrated that no one seems impressed by his ability to speak six million <laughs> forms of communication. He's, always, he, he's also pessimistic, always scared, and his only real friend is R2-D2, whom he constantly berates and insults because he's the only one of his companions he can get away with treating so badly. All of this works because it's all so human and relatable. Those are very human traits. Jaja, on the other hand, is just a slapstick machine. He slips in poodoo, he gets his face electrocuted, he falls over all the time. There's nothing here that reflects us. I mean, unless you're also incredibly clumsy and find that hilarious. So the mileage on Jaja pe- depends on how long a CGI racial caricature constantly making an ass of himself remains comical to you. Mm. Oh, it's a massive problem. Yeah. I thought the first act had some intriguing elements. Uh, the Jedi's calm demeanor, and this kind of goes into a little bit of the problem with Jar Jar as well, is because Jar Jar's teamed up initially in the first act, at least, with the calm demeanor of the Jedi, which is necessary for th- those characters, but doesn't do doesn't help the stakes much in the early Gungan mm. sequences because Jar Jar's the only one freaking out, and Qui Gon and you know Obi Wan just like ah, it's fine. Yeah. There's always a bigger fish. You know, just like that whole sequence. It's like, what's the point of that sequence other than showing off your special effects? Yeah. There's no stakes because no, it's not like the asteroid field. Like no one's freaking out. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah, and actually, the Jedi's kind of float through this film for large chunks until Maul appears. Um, the film has a real snail pace at times. Coruscant sequence in the second act. I, I this time around, I just found it like a near lethal slow acting poison. Really? Yeah, I, I find it shocking that any kids would find the original trilogy the original trilogy slow yet be entertained by Phantom Menace. Mm. It's complete lack of pace. The Senate meetings and Jedi Council Rorschach tests, you know, it's just, uh, I was just like, wow, like this is some slow stuff here. But what is interesting in that is the, is that someone, people are finally making decisions that affect things when you actually get there. Mm. 
So that's the first, you know what I mean? Like all of this other stuff is kind of just built up up until that point. But there's one thing I really like that many didn't. Okay, so some feel, and this was surprising to me, that Qui-Gon Jinn kind of muddies the waters from a narrative perspective. Mm -hmm. There was talk that it was going to be Obi-Wan who was solo throughout. From the beginning of Naboo, he was the one who found Anakin and brought him to Coruscant, and then Qui-Gon was joined basically to get killed by Darth Maul. And the story goes that once Liam Neeson got involved, they were, he's like, no, I'll do all of this. And they're like, oh, cool, we'll, we'll put you in this film. Right. Um, now, I can see how this would help with the question I'm about to get to. <laughs> but first, let me say that Qui-Gon's presence and actions impacts perfectly on the fractured relationship between Obi-Wan and Anakin. Mm-hmm. And this is something I really have come to appreciate over the years. Yep. It means that Obi-Wan reluctantly takes on Anakin as his Padawan, not because he thinks Anakin is the chosen one, but because he made a promise to his master who he admires and thinks is a great Jedi. Yep. And Obi-Wan is more of a company man. He toes the line more and he's willing to put his faith in the Jedi Council. And there's a great scene when, you know, like Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan at the Jedi Council and then Obi-Wan's about to walk out and Qui-Gon stands there and Yoda's kind of like, you got more to say? And he's like, yeah. And he's going to bring up Anakin. And in that moment, I was like, yeah, that's the difference between them. They respect each other's differences, but they are different, they're different people. And this adds tension because Anakin is not a traditional Jedi. He's more reckless and impulsive, but he also follows his feelings and is willing to bend the rules as well as his argue his case. And this is more in line with Qui-Gon's actions. And I believe it's the loss of Qui-Gon which seals Anakin's fate because Qui-Gon is the father figure and Obi-Wan is more like a competitive older brother figure. And Anakin struggles to accept Obi-Wan's teachings and and he shows defiance, which I don't think he would do with Qui-Gon. And I'm never convinced that Obi-Wan necessarily believes that Anakin is the chosen one the way that Qui-Gon did. It's one of my favorite layered relationships in the entire series, including 4, 5, and 6. And it's more as the pity is they kind of spend so much time apart in Clones and Sith, though it makes their reunion a bit more tense each time as they grow further apart. Now, the question I said I'd get to, which is, so Qui-Gon Jinn is the protagonist, right? Like, he is the character we start with. We follow through the adventure. He's in most scenes, and his death is only 10 minutes from the end. He makes decisions that impact the narrative. He also has the journey of discovery. He identifies Anakin and fights for him in literal terms against Darth Maul and also against the Jedi Council's yeah. wishes. Phantom Menace can be seen as a tragedy, and that's not a mean-spirited joke, yeah. uh, but it is a tragedy dressed as a victory. The celebration at the end is hollow, a short-term gain, over the Trade Federation is ultimately meaningless. Anakin becomes a Padawan next to Obi-Wan isn't something we should cheer, especially considering the eventual fate. So really, it's Qui-Gon's movie. Anakin has two character advancement moments, the first in the pod race and the second is him leaving his mother. But after that, he actually kind of drifts through the final third of the movie without there being any concrete markers as to his hero's journey. It's Qui-Gon who is shown to fall short both in his belief in Anakin and in his battle with Darth Maul. And it's kind of like, Anakin, ever heard of the tragedy of Darth Plagueis the Wise? No, but I've witnessed the tragedy of Qui-Gon Jinn. <laughs> so I really appreciated those things this time around watching it. Um, and, and I think it's been growing on me ever since. And I really love Ewan McGregor's performance in this film. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen um, Dave Filoni, um, you know, the Star Wars guru, basically, right, sure. from Clone Wars, um, had this impassioned speech about how important he thought the uh, final lightsaber battle was because it was mm. the death, the tragic death of Qui-Gon who is right. a father figure yeah. to this boy who he's taking away from a family mm. and this boy never gets a family. And you know, yeah. um, Obi's got that scene where he, he talks about, oh, you found another useless life form or something. Yeah. Because that's how he feels about yeah. you know, Jar Jar and that's how he feels about... Whereas Qui-Gon's more, uh, I guess, enlightened or open to the possibility and hope of these characters. Yeah, that's right. And so that's why his death is, is like you say, it's a tragedy. Yeah. Uh, what if Anakin had had a father figure? Yeah. What if there'd been someone who cared about him and trained him, and you know, That's so right. his loss becomes, and as you say, Obi Wan takes him out of uh, a sense of responsibility. Yeah, that's right. Well, just uh, following on with, from from uh, talking about those character relationships, one of the other things I found myself really enjoying this time round was the performances of everyone not named Anakin or Jaja. <laughs> Uh, the characters in the prequels get a lot of stick, but after rewatching the sequel trilogy, I found the restraint of the Phantom Menace kind of pleasing. In the sequels, it's like everyone is pitching their performance at a heightened level. Uh, Ray, for instance, only has the most intense of emotions. Finn and Poe are always urgent, always desperately urgent, mm. which isn't a criticism really of the performance. It's just the choice these films are made. It's like their aesthetic is full tilt. Mm. 
And it's just the way that modern blockbusters are, p- perhaps. But the prequels are a little bit different. You know, characters are often hard to read. Mm. You know, is, is Qui-Gon really a trustworthy person a lot of mm. the time? What's his motivation? I assume so, but his monastic reserve makes him difficult to, to read. Uh, as do many of the characters. I mean, Mace Windu seems like a guy who might be happy with the situation, but maybe secretly hates everything. <laughs> you know? I'd hate to have to cook for the guy. I'm sure he'd <laughs> yeah. just look at it and go, yeah, it's fine, and you know he's seething internally. <laughs> Which is perhaps why so many Star Wars message boards have been given over to debating how corrupt the Jedi Order are and had become, because if they're corrupt, it's actually pretty hard to tell one way or another, so it's open to kind of this reading. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And I actually appreciate that. It's, yeah. It's not so readily apparent. Yeah. Look, I, I think the thing with the Jedi thing as well, um, and, and, and like I say, it's a lot of people's kind of reading outside of the films. Yeah, I think it is, yeah. Um, but I think it's that thing of it, it's, it's, it's trying to... It's trying to do. It's trying to reach a nirvana, right? As being a Jedi, you know. So there's there's always going to be some kind of um, corruption there. You're never going to be able to be perfect. So people are going to bend the rules, and you're interpreting things, and so you're like, well, is that a Jedi move, or is that not? Is that should you be doing that? And there's a lot of kind of room to it. And, and because you've done that, and you're a Jedi, does that mean that that's allowable, mm. or is it a corruption of the Jedi Order? Mm. You know. So it's not. It's kind of open to interpretation all the time. It's, yeah, yeah. I think like we'll get onto that in a little more. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure we will. <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, you were talking about how painful Coruscant was t- to you. I found everything on Tatooine pretty nasty. And to yep. a point, which I'll get to, and I think that's a lot to do with the fact that this is where we get young Anakin yep. and Jar Jar occupying yep. screen space at the same time a lot. Yeah. Yep. Man, it was hard to take. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get onto Anakin and Attack of the Clones. I've, I've decided to... <laughs> Why are you going to let Jake Lloyd off? Uh, yeah, for for a couple of reasons, yeah. Yeah, to yeah. be fair, it's not his fault, I don't think. No, but because it goes beyond actors, yeah, for sure. The, the casting's an issue because he's so much yeah. younger than Natalie Portman as well. Yeah. And there's something re- really creepy about that. Yeah. yeah. Again, it's another one that I heard that it was written for a 12-year-old and then at kind of the 11th hour, they yeah. actually went, ah, let's make him eight. And I can understand that because of a young audience who might want to relate to this idea of a kid getting to... Yeah. You know, play around with race cars and build droids and things. And yeah. And spaceships. It's kind of a wishful film in a way. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. The evil. It's the last starfighter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. <laughs> um, also, I don't know about this whole slavery gig. I know we've talked about this off mic before, but he, we Lucas obviously wants us to feel sorry for the kid, but also drapes him in cool stuff to make him to make other kids think he's he's neat. I guess. Yeah. You know, he has his own protocol droid. He's built himself in his own bedroom, and he's building a hot rod in his spare time. That's a pretty freaking entitled slave kid, eh? <laughs> Yeah, well, that's the thing is, yeah, I, I always thought that as well. I was like, oh, his house doesn't look too bad. Yeah. Oh, he's got his own, he's got, he's, he's got a, a, a protocol droid and a pod race. You he's know, got a pod racer. I mean, yeah. what eight year old kid has a sports car? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, not just any sports car, but, you know, one that wins yeah. like uh, major league races. And it's worth a slave, right? So he's, I can't remember the exact, actually, the, I get lost in the transactions of everything. Yeah, but sure, sure, sure. But it's like worth a slave. It's like, couldn't you sell that? Couldn't you buy yourself out of slavery? You just sell that. Tell the, tell the pod. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's it's confusing, isn't it? Yeah. Is there no market for slaves, really? Is it basically just Watto selling to himself? Is yeah. It, is he that much in control that, you know, no one's going to trade for this pod? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's strange, eh? It is, yeah. Now the economies of tattooing. Yeah. It makes me f- grateful for the fun of the pod race, actually. Mm. Uh, now, admittedly, the pod race starts really badly for me. The collection of poorly rendered races stops me in the tracks. Every time, eh? You're not um, a Ben Quadraneris fan then? Oh, I'll get to him. <laughs> Gascano with his silly forearms. Uh, Clegg Holfast with his silly name in Antlers. Dud Bolt, who looks like if Muttley from the Wacky Races was an alligator. <laughs> and my absolute most hated minor character from Phantom Menace, without a doubt, is Ben, Quad- ben Quadraneris, <laughs> who looks like a rejected mascot for a breakfast cereal. <laughs> he like does. He looks like he was drawn to yeah, just so by... Captain you know, Crunch or something. Overnight yeah. and going, ah, this is what we'll go with. Yeah. Um, and then we have the two-headed commentator voiced by Greg Proops, who leans way too far into being a version of an Earthworld commentary team for me, which is something yeah. that's going to come up again, but it's something that annoys me a lot, you know? Yeah. And like I say, the race is really fun. It's obviously Lucas trying to recreate the chariot races from Ben-Hur, mm. but he pushes it far enough to me into his galaxy far, far away that I'm not offended by the reference. I don't find myself, you know, drawn back to like, ah, it's a ripoff of that. It has real momentum, and as is the case for all the prequels. Yeah. Star Wars in general, great sound. Yeah. Oh, the sound. 
Ben Burt take a bow. Won't be the last oh, time we say that. No, but no, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. Um, look, there's, you know, I don't think I've made too much of a secret that Phantom Menace, um, I, I enjoy Phantom Menace for two reasons, and one of them is the pod race. Yeah. And in the cinema, this was pretty, pretty awesome, actually, watching it. Did you know that they added a lap? So there's a lap added. I've, I've heard this. What was the reasoning again? They just added it. And so when you saw it the first time, it was shorter, the pod race. That's what feels so long now. Oh, right. Because they've actually added a whole other lap in there. Oh, man. So originally it was only two laps yeah. in the cinema release, and we've got three or something like that. Oh, we're spoiled, eh? Yeah. <laughs> More Ben Quadraneris trying to More. start his engine. <laughs> I, he's the worst design. But I was thinking about him, right, because I, I can't remember whether he blows up or what happens to him. But he'd probably be able to crawl over that line, seeing as like Anakin's the only one who actually finishes. He could mm. at least play second, probably. Yeah, actually, just walk around. I just drag remember it. Remember reading about who, um, <laughs> what happened to all these races afterwards, and where their careers. Are. I can't yeah. remember any of it. <laughs> I did look it up. Yeah, yeah. but it's also like Sebulba. It's just like he's just like messing with people's mechanics and just throwing things into the engines. Oh. And it's like, well, why can't you just shoot people? Why Why isn't this like Death Race 2000? You just be like, why can't you just... It's like wacky races, eh? It's yeah. Like almost anything you can get away with. Like, what are the rules? Well, why not have a gun? Why not mm. just like take pot shots at people's engines all the time? How does nobody know that you're doing this stuff? Eh? Yeah. How? Well, yeah. And if you, if it's, you know, if anything goes, all's fair and love and war and mm. pod racing, mm. then why doesn't other people do that? Mm. Um, yeah, you got the Jawas though, the Utini, you got the Tuscan Raiders. Tuscan Raiders. Oh, which I love showing that. up, eh? It's a real best of. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, Jabba. So, um, yeah, look, I, I think you're right in that, that sequence in Tatooine. The, uh, it does slow right down, and, the, and, and it seems there's some strange decisions taken in there before the pod race. You know, it's like. Oh, we'll, we'll meet Watto and then we'll go over here and then we go back to Watto and then it's like, mm. oh, there's a sandstorm coming and then we'll go back to their mm. quarters and then we'll see if we can get the pod race started yeah. and then it's like, oh, it's not working. And it's just like, man, this is just this is really just so you can spend time with Anakin and kind of get to know his backstory. Mm. That's it, basically. Yeah. And I found that that was like, wow, this is really time-consuming. And actually there's, I, I measured it out, there's half an hour between the... When they escape Naboo mm. until the pod race. And then there's literally another half hour between the pod race and then any battles back in Naboo. So if you if you don't like the pod race or you don't count it as like a battle sequence, yeah. it's an hour and a half, hour twenty where there's no action. Yeah, that's hard work. It's eh? <laughs> a lot of hard and that's what I mean when you get to the Senate part where you're like, Well, the pod race you kinda know what's gonna happen and so like dramatically it's not now it's mm. not quite as thrilling as it is on the big screen or the first time first couple of times you've seen it you know after a while you're kind of like oh yeah, yeah. that's cool if you haven't seen it for a while yeah it does capture your imagination yeah. again but um yeah it's not a part it's just like man there's, there's a lot in this film that's yeah. uh yeah yeah like i say tattooing for me was hard work this time around yeah I, I tell you the part that um really i struggle with was actually um the the gungan battle um at the end so the they kind of have that Windows Explorer backdrop, you know, like of the yeah, it looks yeah, exactly yeah, like yeah, that, and it has has the Gungan, um, yeah, uh, has a droid army coming it, over it's the top. It's pretty lazy looking. Um, yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. I keep thinking, like, if you just left that, you'd be like, hmm, is that the Windows Explorer or is that or, Phantom or Menace? Was I was watching Phantom Menace. Yeah, and I, I paused it and I forgot. <laughs> yeah, I just put it on it full screen. Crashed. I just put it on full screen. <laughs> oh, close it down. It'd be great if you had the Windows Explorer on the background and you had that over the top and you like closed it. Yeah, and it was right there. And and I think it's actually I'll tell you another problem, and this is the first time I probably thought about this. Um, it's heightened even further by the absence of human interaction with the digital creations. So all the Gungans and all the droid army, it's just all you know, there's nothing tactile there at all. Yeah. And on this viewing round it was clear what annoyed me. One of the many things. It's the revelation of the droid army being wheeled out before the Gungans. And Lucas goes to pains to show these droids slowly unloaded as if they're like super threatening. But all film, we've seen them sliced and diced by the mm -hmm. Jedi, just like at will. So they're never shown any effectiveness. Even the usually mocked stormtroopers, right? They they took down the Tanti Four, captured Princess Leia, massacred Jawas and Luke's parents yeah. while framing Tusken Raiders on the first first thirty minutes of A New Hope. So That's set up, eh? yeah, yeah. So yeah. like once our heroes start dodging them, you're like, well, actually, maybe our heroes aren't too bad because you've kind of actually shown these guys are pretty mm -hmm. effective. Battle droids just getting chopped down from the beginning. So it doesn't exactly instill any fear. I thought they could have introduced a really striking enemy at that point, like 
you know, like a la the Atats and Empire. Yeah, this is a small point, but one of the things I don't like is how easily um, Jedi block laser blasts. Yeah. Like, I always got the sense with Luke that he had to concentrate. Like, when a blast was mm. coming towards him, he thought about it and moved the blade and blocked it. Mm. They just wave, twirl their blades around, and the laser yeah. blast just been knocked aside. It's so effortless. Yeah. And, and, and like you say, destroying the battle droids is just a piece of cake, you know? Yeah. They're constantly doing that thing where they just force push them into, into yeah. walls. And yeah. Uh, there's another thing that that bothered me as well. They, they do that force run, right? And I, the, the, force force, the force run at the beginning is a real problem because – Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's the only time that happens in the uh, in the series, right? No one else force runs. There's not another scene of them force running. They force jump, but I don't remember anyone force running. So anyway, they can do the force running, right? So they're like, yeah. oh, they we're in a standoff right at the beginning, and then they force run out of there, like, whoosh. like okay, okay. But then <laughs> when Obi Wan's trying to catch up with Qui Gon and Darth Maul, mm. why is he running normally? Why isn't he force running? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, force running is it's forgotten about pretty quickly. Yeah, but um, <laughs> it's problematic. But I, I am always distracted in that scene by the fact that those droidica droids are yeah. such a handful for them. Why should they be? Mm. I mean, you've got the force. This whole thing, mm. like it's a standoff. Well, why? Yeah. They're just robots. And if they are so d- incredible, why are they only ever in like this film? Yeah. What happened to that technology that it doesn't exist just, in Star must just Wars? Must cost and a bomb. Yeah, but I mean, surely the Empire <laughs> could afford them, right? Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. It's a, it's one of those small things, but it immediately at the beginning of the film kind of yeah. like, wait, what? It's yeah. one of those things that just stops me for a moment and gets me. Yeah, why don't you just all have shield generators? Yeah, yeah totally. I mean, mm. Perfect. Just fleets of these things. Mm. All right, so now it's time to rank a few things. And we've designed a midichlorian-based system for <laughs> ranking because everyone loves midichlorians, right? From zero midichlorians, basically Han Solo dismissing the Force as a hokey religion, to a full five midichlorians, which is more midichlorians than Master Yoda. <laughs> and I'm starting uh, with design. Okay. All right. Which encompasses ships, costumes, aliens, robots, and worlds. Basically everything that's been created for the prequel films. And I'm giving The Phantom Menace a four and a half. Nice. So much of what I come to think of w- with fondness when I imagine the look of the prequel films was born in this film. Uh, I'll get the things I don't care for out of the way first so I can concentrate on all the things that The Phantom Menace really gets right for me. I've already voiced my displeasure about the pod racists, so I won't talk about them any further, but let's also spend a moment on the racist alien stereotypes of the Nemoidians. <laughs> by guide, cowardly, scheming, and with the voice of Mickey Rooney and Breakfast at Tiffany's. I could deal with them. Hell, even embrace them a bit if it wasn't for that voice. Then there's Watto, the Jewish fly caricature, greedy, driven by money with his hooked nose out of some Nazi propaganda cartoon. And finally, of course, Bumbling Jaja, a kind of Caribbean-inspired space step and fetch character who's horrendous. <laughs> I mean, that's a, a grab bag of really unfortunate kind of racial caricatures. Isn't it, it is, yeah. And the droid army is a bit of a mixed bag for me. The droids are an appealing design, especially when they fold out from the carrier tank. I think that's kind of cool. Yeah, but that's about the bo- bugs. Mo- like, the design of that is cool, but the, the unfolding un- as, as if there's some major threat is like... Well, it's the f- it's the fact that they're not threatening enough is the problem. Mm, that's right. The, the, the design is, yeah. Them as kind of, yeah. Um, but their voices, the constant Roger Roger, is not yeah. something I ever cared for. They really lean into their comical nature in the Clone War series, and here they pose little threat either. Um, I've talked about the rolling Brudekas and why they bother me. So on to what this film does well. And I'm going to start with the ships. Uh, the Silver Naboo starship is gorgeous, but the Naboo starfighter is something else. Uh, a friend of the show, James McColl, called it as iconic as the X-Wing in its own way. And he's not wrong. It's sleek and pretty in a way that sells in the Naboo culture with its sophisticated, elegant aesthetic. And it's just a damn cool-looking ship. In fact, Naboo, in fact, Naboo is just a well-designed world from top to bottom for me. The wide establishing shots are gorgeous and unique to the Star Wars galaxy. You'd never confuse Naboo any other planet you see in the saga it's, it's, it's a really particular look and the costuming is killer as well mm. uh, the shot of Natalie Portman in the royal robes the vertical slit of red lipstick the wildly elaborate headpieces is one of the most iconic images of the prequels um, and the other great iconic image of the film is of course Darth Maul I mean first of all he's called Maul which is great in itself, what a great name animalistic, brutal sounding and he has what looks like tiger claws coming out of his head it serves no obvious purpose, but look amazing. And his face is red and black with eyes that appear to be on fire. It's a hell of a look, even before he ignites his two-bladed lightsaber, which is the first, and theref- therefore, 
the best of any of the many attempts to make crazy variations on lightsabers. Yeah. Yeah, hey, I agree with that. I gave it four out of five midichlorines uh, as oh, well for the course. Very of the similar. Very yeah. similar. And Naboo, as you say, has a classical Baroque feel to it, uh, palatial settings and Spanish-influenced buildings. And as you say, there's a care taken with Queen Amidala's outfits. Um, and again, as you say, like going back to 99, immediately Amidala and Maul, you know, people were dressing up like them yeah. before the movie even came out. They were like, oh, this is fantastic. Mm. Yeah, the, the painted face, the headdress, the globes at the hem of the gown. And the ships have a real 1930s feel to them. Um as do the like Naboo pilots' costumes. Mm. Like George Lucas is really returning to his Flash Gordon yeah, he's inspiration. Flash Gordon finally we wanted to. Yeah, even the way that they kind of come down on the on the on the on the ground, like those lovely Naboo ships, yeah. kind of reminds me of those. You remember those documentaries they released, and and they would show like serials from. Yeah. And and, um, and they would show you know the Flash Gordon ships in the serials. They just the, see old, the sparklers coming out the back. Yeah, right? the sparklers yeah. coming. It reminded me of that. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is exactly it. And I also, even though you're not a big fan of the um, the pod races themselves, what I do like is I do like the design of the pods. The pods aren't my problem. Yeah, yeah. no, no. Uh, exactly. Uh, because they're just these, like, giant engines, like, just really tenuously held together with thin wires. It just makes them seem so volatile. Mm. You know, like, like they're riding these, like, floating reactors that could blow at any minute, mm -hmm. like, kind of harnessing this technology that maybe they shouldn't be. Yeah, and I really like that, and that's what makes um, the pod races work so well. And also, just that kind of image of Anakin behind there, just this little kid just riding these nuclear reactors, is yeah. just crazy. Uh, totally implausible. Like, I yeah. don't know how they're supposed to actually operate. Eh? No, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, and so now we're on to most notorious scenes. And look, I've got to give this five out of five metachlorines for most notorious scenes. I'm shook. <laughs> Yes, there are stupid moments. Jar Jar stepping in poo and doling his relentless slapstick like someone's colorized a Three Stooges movie. But there's also the midichlorines themselves. Their existence is problematic to the original trilogy and our experience of the Force. And then they have the gall to put another layer to this, which is the Immaculate Conception. It's difficult to overstate how poorly these were received almost immediately. I thought the Immaculate Conception was quite a lazy steal, making Anakin mm. even more of a messiah or like an antichrist, I guess, like the omen, you know, <laughs> born of a jackal. Um, so, and, and as you say, like Jar Jar, I mean, you could just go on ad nauseum about Jar Jar. And, and everyone's right when they complain about Jar Jar. But it, just on this point, it isn't that I was tolerating Jar Jar when I was watching it, but that kind of... And, dumbfounds me it's more that the other characters in the movie are tolerating him mm. like really the only one who has any slight problem is quite gone where he like snaps his tongue but apart from that you know and as you say c3's c3po's annoying traits visibly irritate han Leia, and chewie and the empire strikes back but except for quite grabbing his tongue and with jedi reflexes jar jar's antics are barely commented upon by anyone yeah everyone's just like oh yeah that guy yeah, they just like stand there and just look at it and no one says anything. Everyone's just neutral the whole time. So I just think that there's all of the reasons you've stated with um, Jar Jar, really. As you say, Jar Jar and Anakin together, which would lead into cheesiest dialogue. Yeah. Okay, well, look, um, it's controversially, uh, I'm only going to give two bit of Wow. Answers. And look, I am also bothered by the Immaculate Conception. And what bothers me about it is it seems like an unnecessarily mythological kind of religious mm. um, layer to add to a film which also wants to science away the force. Yeah. I, I don't understand why you would lean so hard into something um, so taken from, you know, Christian religion essentially, mm. but then also want to find a scientific DNA-based rationale yeah. for the force. Um, I'm a little more forgiven with forgiving about the uh, immaculate conception though because... Uh, of events that happen in Revenge of the Sith where we start talking about creating life and I you start wondering, oh, was this always something that was established? Do you know what I mean? Like somebody had tried to use, Plagueis had tried to use the dark side. I've, of I've heard that theory. Yeah. I've heard the Plagueis theory. I, but that's all EU Totally, but so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna touch oh, that. You're not gonna touch that. Oh, no, okay, no. Well, good for well you. I don't know. You can you can you can wheel out like four books and five audio books oh. and seven comics. I should read to understand exactly midichlorians. Look, as, but as a man <laughs> with a Star Wars novel and two comics that is on his bedside <laughs> table, but no, I'm I'm not even gonna bother reading into that. But I just like the mental 
the mental gymnastics of thinking about yeah. it. Um, yeah. So I'm less bothered by that. Um, but there are, and I guess I th- I'd be surprised that there were fewer genuinely worrying moments in this film than I expected. As I said, Jar Jar and Anakin are both hard to take at times. But there are a few absolutely iconically awful or unforgettably memeable moments coming out of them. I'm giving one of those midichlorians for this is pod racing combined with I'll try spinning. That's a good trick. Yeah. Um, two lines that tumble leadenly out of Jake Lloyd's mouth. On the Jar Jar side, I have to go with Yusa thinking, Yusa, people going to die? <laughs> and I also really hate that Jar Jar really ruins his end of the final battle scene with his goofy antics. I know Lucas is going for comic stuff for the kids, but intercutting it with one of the saga's best lightsaber battles at the same time mm. is just, uh, that's just one messed up juxtaposition. Yeah, and and that's a big a big chunk of my midichlorian count goes for that as well, because I do think it, it, it spoils that. And if you were going to cut one, I know a lot of people go, oh, the Anakin scene is actually really annoying, you know, when he's flying around and doing all that. Watching this again, I actually preferred that to the Gungans. Oh, I do too. And uh, so, which is quite staggering, seeing as there's like four different things going on, and somehow the Gungans is somehow worse than Anakin's. A t- completely unnecessary thing because you think at least the Gungan thing is theoretically in this movie essential. Just stealing Rick Ollie's thunder, right? <laughs> yeah, that should right. have been his day. I know Rick Ollie's cursing that kid out. Yeah, man. yeah, totally. Anakin. Um, okay, I'm going to move on to a category I, I, I'm really excited about. Palpatine awesomeness. <laughs> uh, anyone who's listened to our podcast on Rise of Skywalker knows I love myself some Palpatine, a.k.a. Darth Sidious, a.k.a. the Future Empire, a.k.a. Sheev. Sheev. Sheev to his mates. He's kind of an outlier in the original trilogy, which despite having space wizards and monsters galore, still had an air of real-world groundedness. Han, Luke, and Leia all felt like well-rounded characters. Archetypes, to be sure, but people who we could relate to. They could have been taken from... Uh, a contemporary drama and dumped into the Star Wars galaxy and felt right. They wouldn't have broken mm. their stride doing so. Even the villains tended to be believable. Grand Moff Tarkin and the parade of uniformed Imperial officers all struck me as military officers of varying degrees of cruelty, cowardice and ambition. Darth Vader, sure. Okay, he's pretty extraordinary. <laughs> but as the series progressed, even he developed hidden tragic depths. But not Sheevy, babe. He is full of cackling villainy from the get-go. And I'm all for it. It absolutely helps that Ian McDiarmid holds nothing back, embracing the cartoonishly extravagant cruelness of the Emperor. As much as I enjoyed him being an unstoppable, destructive wizard in Return of the Jedi, I also got always got a kick out of his simpering taunts. Oh, I'm afraid the deflectors here will be quite operational when your <laughs> friends arrive. I mean, what a, what a jerk, eh? <laughs> it's peak Palpatine jerkiness, and I love it. Uh, which is why we're going to be including a rating for Sheev Palpatine in our reviews, because... As much as Disney would have you believe the Star Wars films are the Skywalker saga, they're just as much the Sheaves saga <laughs> for me. Yeah. So, unfortunately, a lowly two Sith midichlorians uh, for Palpatine awesomeness in this film. Sheev is just finding the Star Wars feet. His role will grow as the trilogy continues. But he does get the awesome line, wipe them out, all of them. Yeah. And two lines I like to drop into conversations if I can. A surprise, I'm sure, but a welcome one. And... We should watch your career with great interest. <laughs> uh, well, much like Anakin um, flying up the, uh, on the Rick Ole, you've stolen my thunder there. Um, I, I definitely give three out of five midichlorians for Palps moments in Phantom Menace. Uh, one of my favorite comedies of all time is Blackadder. And a benefit is being able to use lines from it in everyday conversation and people uh, not really yeah, knowing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they think, oh, you're quite, that's quite clever. Did you just come up with that? No, I stole it from a TV yeah. show in the 80s. And Palpatine's the same. And... Um, like you say, delivers the line in the most smug Blackadder line when he says, a surprise, to be sure, but a pleasant one. The way that yeah. he delivers that is just... I have dropped that into conversations before. And yeah. like you say, it just goes unnoticed largely. Well, also because if someone yeah, because if someone says, whenever I, I say a surprise, mm. then I'll always add on the end, to be sure, but a pleasant one. Mm. You know, people are like, hmm, that seems unnecessary, yeah, yeah. but there's nothing overtly, not like, oh, Star Wars nerd. Yeah. <laughs> Not one of those super obvious lines. Yeah, no, that's yeah. right. And as you say, uh, wipe them out, all of them. Again, from the trailer, big line. From the trailer, yeah. Really, you know, him introducing Darth Maul and kind of him in the shadows with the Trade Federation. Mm. Um, I will make it legal, mm. you know, that kind mm. of stuff. And um, I really love the scene in the Senate. This is the, the one part in Coruscant that I really do love is the scenes with him, but particularly him po- pouring poison into Armadala's ear. 
uh, at the Senate meeting, and it's a great moment, and it's echoed again in Sith uh, with Anakin at the opera. Mm-hmm. So it's nice that he has this kind of control over these two yeah, yeah. things, his influence, you know, and he, he, he's, he's taking advantage of the best, you know, he's using the best of the best of their nature, the yep. most vulnerable of their nature for his own gains. So, uh, yeah, yeah. But I, I, I do really enjoy Palpatine mm. in this one. Mm. Okay, uh, second to last category of our five, uh, the corniness of the dialogue. And I'm giving two midichlorians for the corniness of the dialogue. That might sound like a low number, but I'm grading on a curve that includes the film Attack of the Clones. <laughs> so bear with me. Um, as I said earlier, the majority of the really rank scenes in Phantom are scenes with Jar Jar or Anakin, or even worse, both of them together. So the worst dialogue to ke- uh, tends to come out of their mouths. I do not, I do not need to hear Jar Jar say, "How wooed ever again in my life." But that's probably not the worst offender here. That's maybe you see people going to die. Poor Jake Lloyd makes alien dialogue sounds awful. Like there's a scene where he's clearly speaking in an alien tongue. Mm-hmm. None of it looks plausible. When um, he's talking Hutties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or yeah. he speaks to Watto and it's like, yeah. oh, that looks terrible. Yeah. It's not, it's not even English and he can't deliver mm. it. Uh, I feel sorry. And I feel sorry for him. I mean, you mm. know, what are you going to do? But he's completely hung out to dry by lines like, are you an angel? Uh, I'm a person and my name is Anakin. And of course, famously, yippee. Yeah, yeah. The other ones I had written down, I, I'd give this three out of uh, five midichlorians. There's some pretty bad ones in here, and and you've said all of them. All of them are Jake Lloyd's, but also there's a lot of uh, Jar Jar that's um, pretty unlistenable. Oh, so, yeah. There's yeah. a lot of Jar Jar I've no doubt skipped over there. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, I can't, can't add too much more to that because you've <laughs> you, you've summed them all up. Yeah, the yippee and the try spinning. That's a good trick and. Yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah, it's pretty bad. The are you an angel? And that's really where a lot of those dialogues come in. We'll talk about this as we go on, but um, where I think maybe his dialogue with Padme at least would seem slightly less inappropriate or unbelievable if it was coming out of a kid who is say like twelve years old and you know aware yeah. of aware of girls you know what i mean yeah, the age is a problem real problem yeah yeah and so those lines particularly with pat there's some stuff that he does and this is should really be in a in a kind of a in a in a defense of jake lloyd there, there, there are moments when he says things that an eight-year-old might you know like mm. like when he gets excited about leaving going into space mm. and then he realizes he's leaving his mum behind and he's so excited, and then he kind of dawns on him. Mm. You know, it's that kid who's like, well, I'm doing this now. Cool. Isn't mm-hmm. this cool? And then he kind of thinks about it. That part works quite well. Uh, you know, or when Yoda says to him, you know, you know, you miss your mom, and you, you, you worry for her, and he's like, yeah, what's that got to do with anything kind of thing? Mm. You know, you're like, oh, yeah, I could imagine a kid might get defensive mm. about that kind of thing because kids are not supposed to miss their mum, you know, mm, in yeah, front, yeah, yeah. front of a bunch of strangers who are judging them, you know. Yeah. So there's, there's there's little moments that work all right. And I think actually the stuff with Shmi, Skywalker, he does do quite well in when he's actually acting opposite her. He actually, weirdly, he feels most comfortable when he's in those mother-son scenes. I don't think that's weird at all because, I mean, think about a lot of it's with... Mm. Um, what would be a giant man in a green suit with a <laughs> like a rubber monster yeah. head on his top of his head? Yeah. So the fact that he's engaging with an actress, yeah. who I actually think does good work in this film. By the way, um, right. The, the scenes between Qui Gon, uh, between Qui Gon and Shmi are actually quite sweet. Yeah. Um, that stuff I don't mind at all. So it, yeah. it doesn't surprise me that his scenes with her are good. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I just don't. Th- I just think the thing with Portman, I don't. Th- th- those scenes don't work for me. And no, I think me it's neither. just that kind of. I think Portman's kind of wondering what she's supposed to be doing exactly in those scenes more yeah. than Jack Lloyd. Jack Lloyd's just like, oh, I've got some lines to say, but I don't really even know what yeah. they mean. You might as well be giving him hutties for all so, he knows. <laughs> uh, n- none of my criticisms of the dialogue are criticisms of Jack Lloyd, by the way. No, no, no. no. And uh, I'm aware of that. I'm just saying that there are there were times in this thing where I did believe him in that situation. So yeah. it does come down to, as you say, he's probably dancing around a green screen, you know, having to talk to Watto and Jar Jar and stuff. Yeah, that's just, yeah. right? Yeah. And now we're on to... Lightsaber battles. And again, this would generally be a five, but I've put this on on the curve of what we're going to be reviewing. And I, I give this a four out of five midichlorians for me, the lightsaber battle. Look, a big part of my initial enjoyment back in 99 was the Jedi battle. Qui-Gon versus Maul versus Kenobi. And Lucas understands archetypes. Sometimes he falls back on them a little too much. But here he uses the mentor, student, and villain 
and moves to three force users toward like an inevitable battle. Maul is a really lethal presence. And once again, Lucas, as we say, deserves credit for being able to conjure an instantly iconic villain. He did it with Darth Vader. He does it again with Maul. And Maul might not be as cool as Boba Fett or as terrifying as Darth Vader, but he is a striking physical threat. And the look of concern on Qui-Gon Jinn's face is enough to signal our Jedi heroes are in trouble. Um, and this fight still kicks ass. The camera shot when the doors and the hangar open and Maul's hooded head slowly raises. Mm. That John Williams music kicks in. The other people just kind of freeze and then just take their leave when Qui-Gon says, we'll deal with this. It's like they're in a Kung Fu film. Yeah. <laughs> and it still gives me goosebumps. And this is what I imagined back when I was a kid thinking about what episodes one to three might include. This, in fact, is about as close as what I thought it would be. Again, and this is another reason along with Podrace why I rank Phantom Menace higher than some other films in this prequel trilogy is for the, this is one of the reasons. We've spoken before about how much, uh, well, I've certainly spoken about how much I love the display of character through action. And Phantom Menace does this very well in one specific sequence when the laser gates close and the combatants are separated from each other. And Obi-Wan is impatiently edgy. Qui-Gon Jinn uses the time to meditate while the enemy Darth Maul paces like a panther back and forth. It's a terrific sequence for multiple reasons. Aside from the revelation of character, it also works to cut off Obi-Wan from Qui-Gon and Maul. And it's an unexpected pause in like the frenetic fight as well, which you wouldn't necessarily expect. I just want to circle back as well. There's a revelation of the Sith emergence is good, you know, when he says, oh, we're going to finally reveal ourselves to the Jedi and that stuff. But there's something that's kind of bugged me, and I could put my finger on what it was. It's the sudden... This film, as we've said, moves glacially at times and is at pains to explain all these backstories and build up all these moments. And then it has this part where the sudden appearance of Darth Maul in the desert against Qui-Gon, it's really odd how it just like does that wipe and then suddenly they're running and then Darth Maul just flips out of nowhere. And I just, I'm like, I'm sure you could have done that better. Look at this kick-ass thing you do at the end. You know... You know what I mean? Yeah. There's something weird about that. That's the first time that a Jedi's ever seen a Sith in a thousand years. Yeah. And it's the first fight that Maul probably would have had with a Jedi. Yeah. So you're just like, this should be as epic as that final fight is. And there's something that bothers me about that. I don't yeah. quite know why they did it that way. And I know that there's scenes cut out of that. There's a little yeah. deleted sequence. But that's after my understanding is it's kind of slightly after. Isn't yeah, it? There was a, the fight seems longer. Uh, yeah, uh, but it's in the middle tent. of it, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. it's actually the introduction part, not so much the... Yeah, no, I yeah. don't think the introduction part changed, but the fight itself was longer and it had them actually fighting up on the ship, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Know, for, for, a moment, for a moment or two. Yeah, so that's yeah. that just always bothered me and, and yeah, I could really put my finger on it this time around. I was like, why are they just rushing yeah. this? You're taking forever. You just spent 30 minutes on a pod race. <laughs> yeah, totally, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, dinner scenes and discussions about angels and... Yeah, you know, metachlorine counts yeah, and totally. stuff. Yeah, going to rush this. Yeah. Uh, look, I don't have much to say on this. I'm giving it a three and a half. Mm -hmm. um, and mostly that's because the, the lightsaber stuff leading up to that scene isn't really much to talk mm. about. Um, I get sick of the, the way they twirl their lightsabers around so gracelessly when they're defecting laser bolts and, and carving through droids like that. Yeah. Just butter. Yeah. Um, so for me, it's like, ah... Oh, most of this film is actually a bit disappointing. And then we get up mm. to this, which is great. Yeah. It earns its three and a half midichlorians for me. <laughs> um, and I didn't write down much about this because I knew what you were going to hit. <laughs> and I knew you were going to talk about that, that was laser gates. And, oh, I love that laser gate. Um, and I also love that scene where they, they have those, clo those single close-ups yeah, zoom up totally. on. So on good. So good. And then just after it, it like, zooms up on Maul, it zooms up on Qui-Gon, it zooms up on Obi-Wan. And then it cuts wide. And then you see Obi-Wan do that fake where he kind of moves forward. And then, but Qui-Gon hits and more, and I just love those little subtle little things yeah. in there as well. Um, yeah, and, and, and McGregor's so dedicated in that, mm. in the way that kind of Maul's taunting him and waiting for him and that, that, that thing. And I love how choreographed it is. Like, I know a lot of, it seems crazy to me, people are like, you know, I know I'm preaching the converted here, but, you know, that people were like, I oh, so choreographed. I'm like, yeah, these guys are Jedi freaking masters fighting Sith Lords. Yeah. This is what this is supposed to be. Um, I'm saving my powder up on this one. Okay. But, um, yeah, I've, I've gone backward and forward on the choreographing. 
Yeah. Um, but I do accept that it's the aesthetic of these films. I, and and that's, yeah. that, that's what we've got. And again, it gets to, I think the reason I love this sequence so much, and it uh, still gets me, when I build up to this, this is one of the few things in the prequel trilogy where I'm looking forward, you know, there's an energy for me looking forward to coming, knowing the scene's coming. And I think that, as again, this is one of those few times in the prequel trilogy that really meets my expectations of when I was a kid playing with the figures and this is what, yeah. like, in those dark times between 83 and 99 yeah, yeah, yeah. where I'm like, that's what I imagined was just these uh, kick-ass Sith Lord taking on a couple of Jedi and it's perfect, so yeah. Yeah. I just imagined a frogman stealing food from the table with this kind of... <laughs> <laughs> Wait, we both, we both win. Yeah, yeah, we do. We Maybe do. Phantom so Menace is perfect. Secretly, it is the best. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So that was The Phantom Menace. All right. Now's a good time to take a break, drink some blue milk, and come back for our review of Attack of the Clones. All right. See you then.